Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And before we get into talking about trauma today, I just want to thank all those out there who have already tuned into the podcast. I want this to be as useful as possible. And I am welcome to any sort of feedback. I want to create content that is applicable to you and to those close to you. So if you shoot me an email talking about a topic that you would like covered that I know enough about to cover in 20 to 30 minutes, I will probably make an episode for it. Again, this isn't about monetizing right now. It's mostly just a public service and I'm having a good time doing it. So whatever topics you can think of that'll be most useful to you, please send them in. So onto our topic for today, trauma. We're talking about what it is, what it does, and what we can do about it. And so the posts that we'll be reading through today are called, Is It Me or My Past? Detecting the Effects of Trauma, The Natural Trauma Recovery Process, The Difference Between Venting or Processing, Principles of Forgiveness Part 3, I Thought I Forgave, But It Still Hurts, And then the last one is The Importance of Doing Nothing, Part 1. All right, let's get started. Is it me or my past? Detecting the effects of trauma. One of the most common questions I hear is, what is wrong with me? If we're talking about your soul or your character, I can virtually always say there is nothing wrong with you. Almost always, your symptoms, your emotional reactions, your coping skills, your relationship skills have very much to do with what happened to you. And I'll put in a plug here for the book, What Happened to You, written by uh, Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah. Some of the most common life events with easily detectable and research-backed effects are those presented in the famous Adverse Child Experiences Study, also known as the ACEs study, in which they found that sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, physical or emotional neglect, parental mental illness, divorce, drug abuse, parental incarceration, or witnessing violence had some of the strongest predictive effects on the outcomes of somebody's life and health. 90% of the population has experienced at least one of those factors. How about you? Even if you haven't experienced what might be considered macro traumas, like those found in the ACE study, you have almost certainly experienced micro traumas. Either way, if these injuries went untreated, they are likely still inside your brain wiring, affecting how you experience the world. The kind of trauma I most detect in those who report nothing terrible in their childhoods are the micro traumas. Some examples are getting yelled at, being judged or criticized, being publicly shamed, being bullied, experiencing intense, unpredictable emotions from adults, receiving consequences disproportionate to the offense, or even when there is no offense, being compared to others, especially siblings, being praised or loved according to your level of achievement, having your emotions invalidated or questioned, or feeling the need to withhold opinions or emotions for fear of being punished or shamed. There are many, many more microtraumas. Anything that evokes the fear or shame or guilt or anger response or freeze response inside of us may be considered a trauma if it goes unprocessed, which I'll discuss in greater detail later. 
Um, the important thing is that these small emotional injuries don't go away, meaning they need to be identified, felt, validated, and resolved with expressions of love, apologies, negotiations, etc. They can't just be ignored. They can't just be forgotten. How do you know if a trauma is processed? Try and put yourself back in the memory. If it still evokes any sort of distress, such as in the form of anger, fear, or shame, then it is still affecting you. It's still a part of your emotional response. If not processed, traumas build up and will manifest as somatic symptoms, such as headaches or stomach problems or joint issues, anxiety or depression, anger problems, inexplicable crying spells, manias or hypomanias, as seen in bipolar. And if not now, then these symptoms will arise when your systemic stress increases, perhaps when you have kids or when you get married or when the economy tanks or a pandemic hits or you start a new job or, or school program. If you are reacting disproportionately to a situation, there is most likely an old unprocessed experience or many experiences coloring the present emotional response. You can find them by thinking of similar memories where you felt the same way. Go back as far as you can remember. So, think about this. What happened to you? And if those things happened to you, what maybe what happened to the person that may have inflicted those things on you? Identifying these things is one of the first steps in addressing them. All right, next chapter. The natural trauma recovery process. In the book, Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine, it gives ways we can conceptualize sources and solutions of traumatic symptoms. In this book, it discusses how all animals have a highly effective process of recovering from fearful or painful experiences after the danger is over. Dr. Levine likes to use the example of an impala. The impala sees a cheetah running at it from behind. The impala's fight-or-flight response is activated and it tries to escape. The cheetah closes in, pounces, and the impala enters freeze mode, going limp and numb, as it now faces certain pain and death. This is what humans do too when they face uh, double bind or cornering scenarios. The cheetah lands by the limp body, examines it, and is repelled by the impala's lifelessness, which implies sickness or rottenness. The freeze survival mechanism worked, and the cheetah walks away in search of apparently fresher meat. The impala gets up when the danger is gone, becomes shaky as the shock wears off, and the impala becomes aware of its surroundings. The impala recovers a normal heart rate and a sense of safety, and it rejoins its herd. It retains no symptoms of the trauma. So, this chapter involves a few diagrams that will be important to see. I'm including a link to the video that talks about the same concept that will give you some of the pictures that we're looking at. Um, but we've got, a, we've got a graph in front of us that shows a line indicating the amount of stress or tension that is inside somebody's body. Okay. And so for this impala, it starts with a baseline level of stress inside its body. Its flight response is activated, so the stress goes up. When it plays freeze, that is where the stress is at its greatest and most overwhelming. And then as the impala recovers, it goes out the way it came, you know, letting off the tension as it moves back through the, the fight-or-flight response, back down to its original baseline. Animals differ from humans in their ability to be mindful. Without higher reasoning, animals are almost always in the present. They can only think about what is happening right now. 
They can't distract themselves, they cannot consider the future, and they cannot dwell on the past. Their brains automatically integrate the safe present with the dangerous past experiences, meaning that they can they teach their brains immediately, that thing happened in the past, it's not happening anymore. And so my emotional response can coordinate with that. So this is how a person might recover from a severe trauma like a sexual assault without developing symptoms from it using the natural recovery process. <clears throat> so we imagine this person with a baseline level of stress as the assault begins to happen, their fight or flight response kicks in. They start to might start to defend themselves or tense up or start to panic. And then when the danger becomes inevitable, like there is no escape from this danger, our bodies experience tonic immobility, which is it is the freeze response. This is why a lot of victims of sexual assault blame themselves because they remember this period where their bodies stopped fighting back. It is not because they you know, wanted this to happen or didn't care that it was happening. It's that their body actually shut down. And then after the assault is over and this person is recovering, they, uh, if they're allowed to experience those emotions, they will you know, be shaky and crying and tense as they release the tension of the trauma. And they may actually achieve that original stress baseline coming away with no symptoms of PTSD. However, the much more common scenario of sexual trauma involves an interrupted recovery process. The stress stays inside the body, changing and increasing the baseline stress level. So instead of the person recovering and being allowed to experience their emotions after the trauma is over, they often experience invalidation from those around them. They are often blamed. They receive victim blame. They distract themselves or numb themselves from the pain and emotions that they're experiencing, or they're actually under continued threat. That tension should stay inside the body if this person still exists in a threatening scenario. That anxiety makes sense. Humans are much more likely than other animals to develop post-traumatic stress for various reasons. Whenever something happens that is frightening enough to send someone into fight, flight, or freeze, humans try their best to not think about it and process it, as working through trauma is painful, and most humans don't know that it's actually helpful. When humans do try to work through their emotions, they often feel threatened with invalidation, fixing, logical challenges, or even more trauma. They are compelled to interrupt the recovery process by those around them or by their own invalidation, having thoughts like, I shouldn't feel this way. Humans have a tendency to get stuck in the past. They replay the trauma, then shut down again, but they don't mindfully return to the present, essentially experiencing the trauma while being present in the room that they're at, in uh, you know where they're at in the moment. Sometimes it takes a safe and specially trained person to help break this unhelpful flashback cycle. Because of these tendencies, it is possible for humans to develop symptoms of mental illness, which we call PTSD if related to an isolated trauma, or anxiety and depression if due to a buildup of smaller traumas, as seen here. And this chart we're looking at is a bunch of small activations of the flight-or-flight flight response that build up to the same degree that a singular large trauma could, uh, could increase the stress baseline in the body. 
Um, obviously, this will be better viewed in the short video that I've got linked here. Each spike in stress could be a fight with a spouse or parent, an insulting remark, or painful loss that was never resolved or processed. Every time we try to stuff feelings, we interrupt the healing process. The stress builds up in the body, producing anxiety and irritability, and making it more likely for traumas to occur. In this way, someone who had a kind parent who didn't know how to validate their feelings could eventually develop the same symptoms as someone who was sexually assaulted. We can conceptualize trauma treatment as the completion of the recovery process. We access the emotional charge, where the person left off when they got dissociated, invalidated, or distracted themselves. We play out the fear, pain, or anger that needed to run its course, and allow the person to feel safety and resolution now, whereas they couldn't back then when the trauma happened. To experience a change in anxious reactivity, we don't have to process every traumatic event individually. Often, processing one event effectively will release the stress of several others related to it, what EMDR processing calls you know, activating the neural network of events. <clears throat> Though helpful, it is also not absolutely necessary to recall the historical details of the event. We don't need to always have a cognitive memory of the trauma. We just need to be able to access the emotion and associated body sensation. Having the cognitive memory helps, but again, not absolutely necessary. Just recounting the details of the event might also not be helpful if you are just recalling it without letting yourself feel the emotional charge of the event. I have had people recount horrendous stories in front of me in the therapy room while experiencing no emotions to it. I can tell that that trauma is both unprocessed and they are not accessing the emotion because their their bodies are not ready to handle it. <clears throat> so, what can we learn from all this? First, we need to validate everybody's feelings and all of the feelings. People need to be allowed to have them because they need to come out. That tension is not helpful when stuffed inside our bodies. You may not know where the feelings come from, but you can bet they're coming from somewhere real and likely proportional to the amount of total stress in the body, if not the stress of a single incident. Meaning that just because somebody's overreacting to this individual event doesn't mean that that reaction isn't proportional to the stuff, the unprocessed stuff that has happened to them. And two, humans have a natural tendency to recover from trauma and mental illness, but they follow a specific process as long as it isn't interrupted. We can learn this process and how to facilitate it, which is what we do in therapy. All right, next post is called Principles of Forgiveness Part 3. I thought I forgave, but it still hurts. Uh, this will teach us a bit about the principles of processing relational trauma. We often encounter an issue in relationships where one person has hurt the other, either deliberately or accidentally, repairs and apologies have been made, and the offended person says they have forgiven, yet they still have emotional reactions when events remind them of the offense. Our example. A husband reveals a pornography habit several years into a couple's marriage, and the wife is devastated. The couple survives the revelation, and the husband goes sober. The wife says she has forgiven him for using pornography and hiding it. One night, after a year of sobriety, the wife notices her husband is spending a bit too long in the bathroom and becomes anxious. He comes out and she aggressively demands what he was doing in there. He feels hurt and defensive, accusing her of lying about having forgiven him, and a fight ensues. 
it turns out he was just constipated. So, has she actually forgiven? I would say yes. But has her amygdala and thalamus been rewired to not trigger a stress response when her husband spends too long in the bathroom? Probably not. Forgiveness and resolution of pain are not the same thing. You can forgive your friend for slamming your finger in the car door and for your finger to still be broken and hurting. Forgiveness is acknowledging that your friend is not a bad person and that you hold no ill will towards him, essentially not wanting to be angry. Resolution is when your finger is fully healed and you feel comfortable enough with your friend to go driving again, given that he has not posed other threats to your fingers. But resolution requires that you admit your finger hurts in order to treat it properly. You can't just say, I forgive you and pretend that my finger isn't still broken. This principle applies to emotional injuries. We need to validate the existence and importance of feelings if we are to address them. Sometimes the repair takes more time to heal for a particular injury, such as for an affair. Sometimes the pain directs us to an older injury. Back to our example. No matter how many apologies and proofs of sobriety this husband provides, the wife's anxiety does not let up. She still feels hurt and angry and feels shame because she recognizes her husband's efforts and doesn't want to feel this way anymore. In therapy, we find that the remaining pain is not actually from the deception and the pornography habit, but from hidden, unhealed injuries from the past. The revelation of the pornography habit triggered the wife's feelings of inadequacy, which she has had for years, and which the husband cannot rectify. He evoked pain with his actions, but he did not cause all the original injuries. Because we validated the wife's emotions, we were able to track it to past injuries involving her own body shame, emotional abuse that she'd received, bullying, and romantic rejections, things that happened well before she ever met her husband. We process those traumas and increase the wife's self-esteem, which keeps her from anxiously fearing a relapse in the present. So, what offenses have you forgiven but still feel hurt about? Is the pain only coming from a singular offense, or is it coming from other things? If so, continue to seek sympathy and repair from the offending party and develop compassion for them. If that offense did trigger older pain, try and process that trauma. All right, at this point, I'm going to talk about two ways that people often address their trauma. One of them is the unhelpful way, and one of them will be the helpful way. So this first one, venting or processing. Is this conversation really helpful? I've explained to many of my clients how I don't allow venting in therapy. I prefer to not use sessions as a coping strategy. But isn't that your job, people say? Well, kind of. I want to help you with your problems, but you can do some things without professional help, and venting is one of those things. Venting can be a healthy coping mechanism. You need to feel all your feelings and let them flow as much as you can, and you can do this by talking to your family members, friends, your dog, the mirror, your journal, whoever or whatever will listen and validate. But in therapy, I'm going to take you a little bit deeper. We're going to look for what is underneath that venting, eliminating or diminishing the original source of stress. So if you come in every week and vent about your partner, I'm going to want to address the reason why you keep coming in and venting about them. I'm going to insist that they come in and we tackle the miscommunications that you're having. If you constantly need to vent about your job, we're going to address 
the fear you have of either quitting your job or setting boundaries at your job. The problem isn't the job. The problem is that you keep racking up injuries from your job. So we need to process the deeper, the deeper reasons behind that. Or if you vent about all the social situations that make you anxious, we're going to address the past experiences that trained your brain to be afraid of people. And if you come in trying to find solutions to cope with an addiction, we're not just going to think of behavioral interventions for the addiction. We're going to find out what is driving the addiction. What are the emotions and traumas that are driving it? So if you need to vent about something one time, we have nothing to worry about. Maybe that venting took care of the processing. Maybe it wasn't a huge trauma. But if you feel the need to vent about something over and over again, then we need to dig a little bit deeper. We need to either target something in the system or go digging around in your trauma for the original source of stress. That would be the most effective use of therapy time. Venting, um, it also may, might be considered ruminating. It's where you're, you're staying at one level of the emotion, usually anger or anxiety, and it usually comes with lots of questions that can't really be answered, or the answer just evokes more questions. Um, digging deeper involves you know, feeling the emotion that you are afraid of or that you are avoiding with this venting or ruminating. So that's what we're going to read about next in the post, The Importance of Doing Nothing. There is always a reason why you are feeling this way. Once we find the reason, we can treat the problem. A straightforward medical logic, right? Though emotional pain and physical pain are processed in the same place in the brain, emotional, brain, emotional pain can be harder to track. We can't detect an emotional wound the same way we can feel around or take an x-ray for a fracture in your femur. But the principles for finding and treating emotional wounds are the same. You must feel safe enough with no major distractions. You must want to find the wounds and admit that they exist. You must have enough mental energy to start the process. You must treat the injuries delicately and dress them properly. And one of my clients mentioned how a full stomach can help. Like physical wounds, our brains will direct us to emotional wounds if we're feeling safe. Your body gets this sense of safety when your heart rate is low. There are various coping mechanisms to bring this about, but the most direct way is just to do controlled breathing. Breathing more out than you are in. Maybe four seconds in, then five seconds out. Uh, this is the opposite of hyperventilating. It sends the reverse signal to the brain that you are in a safe place. When you are safe, the brain will start directing you to your injuries, giving you thoughts and feelings that you can track to actual sources of pain. All emotions are manifested as physical sensations, such as a pit in the stomach, tightness in your chest, tension in your neck, back, or jaw, etc. So, tracking the sensations in your body can give you the words to start with. If your brain tells you to be afraid of social settings, you can track the fear to actual pain of being judged or criticized. If it tells you to be afraid of sin, you can track it to pain of shame or condemnation, things that you've actually felt threatened by or have felt before. If it tells you to be afraid of vulnerability, you can track it to pain of rejection or abuse. When you feel the pain and validate it, it can start healing. So what is this process? Some people call it mindfulness. But it is, in essence, letting yourself do nothing, being like an animal, being in the present. When you just breathe and let your thoughts wander, if there is something to be healed, your brain will call it to your attention. This is what happens in the therapy room. Someone comes in, and if they are ready to face their issues and feel safe, they will break into tears and immediately start processing. I often don't have to do anything but listen and validate. But often, people get stuck. They can't find the next deeper level to their feeling. 
which I was talking about, venting or ruminating, which is why it is good to process with somebody, and perhaps a professional, to ask probing questions and give reflective statements. However, many of our issues can be processed on our own if we just give ourselves the time and space to do it, perhaps with a journal. If we get flooded or stuck, we can take a break and then try and get back to it when, when we're ready. The process might look like this. Sit down in an open position, opposite a fetal position, and breathe slowly. You might recognize a pit in my stomach, an agitation in my legs. What does this mean? I'm feeling hurt and sad and angry at what my wife said. Why am I feeling that way? It's because it felt personal. It felt like she didn't love me. Why would this hurt? What does this mean? If she didn't love me, it would mean that I'm not good enough for her. I feel shame here. Is my pain proportional to this offense? Or does this feel familiar? Where have I felt this before? This seems to hurt more than it should. I know my wife ne meant no harm, but this feels familiar. Mm. Mom would often say similar things that made me feel terrible like this. Besides, tell my spouse about that hurt. What else should I do with this emotion? Do I need to cry about it? Do I need to seek repair or boundary with my mom? Do I tell my spouse to never say anything like that again? Or should I just stuff this and not, not do anything about it? The key is to keep asking yourself, why? Why do I feel this way? Why did that bother me as much as it did? What else is going on that added to this feeling? If you keep asking why, you'll get to the bottom. If you get stuck, ask for help from a non-judgmental person, like a friend or therapist. The enemy of processing is numbing. People who hate being bored or must always have stimulation are often those with a lot of suppressed pain. When we spend excessive time on our phones, TV shows, work, or anxiously seeking out entertainment to avoid being alone with our thoughts, chances are we're trying to avoid pain, which delays our healing. That isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes we need to compartmentalize to be functional. You might uh, review that post we talked about in the episode about coping. But there comes a point when your suppressed emotions will leak out as some bodily symptom, mental health issue, or destructive behavior. So please take the time to do nothing and let the wounds heal. And after the most important wounds are addressed, sitting and doing nothing will lead you to a safe sense of boredom from which you can pursue your goals without anxiety. All right, those are all the posts for today. So just to sum up what we've been talking about. Trauma doesn't have to be a singular earth-shattering event. It can just be anything that still hurts. These hurts build up to cause serious issues, so they all need treating as they come, not just the big ones. You know there's trauma if a topic or memory is hard to talk or about or think about, or you are having emotions that don't seem to fit certain scenarios. Next, trauma processing requires that emotions run their course, not getting shut down through invalidation or mistimed logical statements. Please review the steps booklet episode for more on that distraction, or getting caught up in rumination. All those things shut down this process. All animals have an emotional healing mechanism. We need to let ours flow, and it will if our brains and bodies detect that we are in a safe enough environment to heal. If we can't determine what is keeping us from healing, a good trauma therapist might be able to help. Remember that, though a problem may be rooted in trauma, the system we live in keeps it going. It perpetuates the problem. 
and coping skills may improve our ability to treat it. So this isn't just about treating the trauma um, or just coping or changing up the system. We need to keep all of these things in mind as we are treating, treating mental health and emotional issues. Thank you so much.